Grab your Bible, turn to James chapter 4. I don't know if you've picked up on this now that we're in chapter 4, but James is a pretty intense dude. And he has written the last few weeks, as we've walked through it, some pretty intense things. Some things that are hard for us to swallow, if we're being honest. I mean, he in chapter 1, right out of the blocks, he tells us that when we suffer, we shouldn't actually whine and complain about that, but we should take joy in it because it's producing a maturity in us and that maturity is gold to our faith and he talks about wisdom and how we lack wisdom and where we should go with wisdom he talks about what we should do if we have favorite people and we want to favor one group or another and we shouldn't do that and we should turn away from that and he talks to us about sin and temptation he talks about that our faith can't just be words and good talk and good show, that there has to be some action behind it. The last few weeks have been particularly convicting to me. He's talked to us about our selfish ambition and our envy. He's talked about being earthly and sensual and even demonic and that our lives are filled with disorder and every kind of evil. And last week he talked about, uh, he, he showed us, and Pastor Robbie did an amazing do- job talking about where our fights come from and our quarreling with one another. We murder and we covet and And today is going to be the peak of his intensity. And so hopefully we're on the downhill. He's going to tell us some things that make us happy. But today is an intense word from James. Verse 4 of chapter 4. Adulteresses! Exclamation mark. So in case you were like, I wonder what the sermon's about today. There it is. Adulteresses! Exclamation mark. Do you not know that friendship with the world (coughs) is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. Or do you think it's without reason the scripture says the spirit he has caused to live in us yearns jealously. So right off the beginning, right off the bat, in the beginning, he says adulteresses. So obviously some vows have been broken, which means for us that the fruit of your faith should be faithfulness. If you have genuine faith in Jesus then faithfulness is going to be a fruit. But he says, no, some vows have been broken. You may be thinking what I'm thinking today, which is like, when did I take vows? I didn't realize there were vows. Was that like when I became a member of the church? Is that when I was was baptized? Was, Was that when some vows happened in order for there to be adultery, in order for there to be unfaithfulness? When did I make vows? Now remember... As you read the, the Gospels, Jesus' popularity was in a bell curve. He, he started out not super popular. In fact, he did the inviting in the beginning. He invited Peter and Andrew and James and John. He invited Philip. He invited some of those first followers. He invited Matthew, the tax collector. But as he began to teach and as he began to heal and as he began to move through Galilee and northern Israel, then his crowds begin to grow and grow and grow. And so it is on the bell curve and his popularity is at a peak. But then he starts saying crazy things like in John chapter 6 is, listen, if you want to be in the kingdom of heaven, if you want to be connected with me, then you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And when he says things like that, then you can see his popularity just shrinking a little bit. So by the end of his life, 
Even his closest friends are betraying him. Even his closest friends are denying him. The amount of faithful people has shrunk. Why? Because at the peak of his popularity, most people were coming to Jesus for two reasons. A, they were interested. Their curiosity was peaked. Who is this guy that's saying crazy things and doing crazy things? And we've been hearing the rumors. Or they came to Jesus because they had a specific need. They had a need. They, they were sick. They were demon-possessed. They knew somebody was sick. They knew somebody who was demon-possessed. And so they came to Jesus for need. And eventually, when the need was met, most of those people fell away. Because that's what happens. If my primary commitment is to my need being met, then I won't have long-term faithfulness. So if you're here today, and the only reason that you are here is because your marriage is in disorder, and you're like, what what are we going to do? We don't want to go to counseling yet. It feels like there's a stigma on that. Well, let's get back into church. If that's your only motivation for being here, once your marriage is restored, then you don't have any reason to be a part of what God is doing among us. Because your primary commitment is not to Jesus, it's to the, the need of your marriage. If, 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 if people come to church because their life is in chaos and they just got to get themselves right, they got to get themselves right with God. You hear people say that. Well, when they feel like they're now right and everything is in order and they can check all of their righteousness boxes, then they eventually fall away. We all know people who used to sit next to us at church. And now they don't anymore. Why? Because their commitment wasn't to Jesus. Their commitment was to their need. Their commitment was to whatever they were looking for. And once they found what they were looking for, they eventually fell away. This is what happens to Jesus. This is why he peaks in popularity and then he's essentially all alone when he's being crucified. And if my primary commitment is to my need being met, then my commitment is only as strong as, I'm, as, as long as I'm getting what I want. We all know those people who used to sit next to us at church, but then God didn't answer a prayer for them. So they said, I'm out of here. Then they lost their job. I'm out of here. And their kids didn't work out exactly the way they want, and they have bitterness towards God, and they walk away. Why? Because their commitment wasn't to God. It wasn't to to Jesus. Their commitment was just to their needs being met. And as long as their needs were being met, then they were faithful. But as soon as they perceived that their needs were not being met, then all bets were off. And this is why Jesus peaks in his popularity. So if our mindset is like that, if you're here today and you're like, I'm just in it for me, honestly, I'm just in it for me. And I, I came to God, so that's a good thing, but I'm just in it for me then when he calls us adulteresses, exclamation mark, it doesn't feel right. Because you didn't take any vows when you started coming around. You didn't take any commitments. It's like when uh, Amanda and I got married in 2002, we had a pretty good-sized wedding, and uh, we had some really cool elements that I had never been a part of in a wedding it, uh, like a trumpeter kicked it off for us, which was pretty cool. Of course, you don't get to hear that as the groom. They shove you in a closet and they just tell you when to come out. You know, that's your job is just, just be seen and that's it. And, uh, and so I didn't hear it, but I heard it was cool. It was a big trumpeter. And then we had this moment where six of our friends uh, spoke a blessing over us, which is really neat. And, and then we were going to take communion together, which is 
It's pretty popular now. I had never been to a wedding uh, that uh, where people took communion, so it was going to be awesome. And somebody made us this nice little bench to kneel on. There was a little table, and so the pastor set it up. Now they're going to take communion as one of their first acts as husband and wife. And so we turn around and we kneel down on our little bench, and there's the table in front of us. But there are no elements. There's no cup. There's no bread. So it was like phantom communion. So. We just giggled and laughed the whole time. You know, plus we hadn't seen each other all day. We hadn't talked, so it was a good time to catch up. Uh, instead, of, instead of partaking in the Lord's body and blood, we were, you know, laughing, which feels a little irreverent. After the communion was supposed to happen, which didn't happen, after the communion, I, I had in my heart that I wanted to say some extra vows. You know, I'm the man. I want to be the man. I was 21-year-old, filled with vigor and life, and I just was so... Mm, I want to say some extra vows. I want to do the traditional vows because I'm old school like that. And so for better or worse, richer, poorer, all that. Plus, I knew I wasn't going to make a lot of money. I'm a pastor, so I needed her to commit to being poor. <laughs> so, so we said the regular vows. And it was my turn. It was my turn. So we're still kneeling there at the little bench. We haven't had communion, but the spirit of communion was upon us. And, and so I had went to Hobby Lobby. I went to, I went to Hobby Lobby. And uh, got an expensive piece of paper, you know, like not the cheap stuff, the real nice stuff. And, and I printed it up in a real flowery font and it said these vows. So I grabbed the little frame that was there. I'd put it in and I start reading the vows. And you know that when you cry, like it starts like kind of in between your stomach and you're like esophagus. Like that's where a cry starts and, and you kind of feel it coming, you know. Because the combination of the two things the intensity of all these people watching and the intensity of what I'm feeling for this woman and making these promises to her. Like, it was kind of overwhelming. And so I'm trying to say these vows and choke down tears at the same time. But I can't do it. I'm overwhelmed. And so I start crying. But I didn't start crying. It sounded like if a donkey was getting kicked in the ribs. (laughs) So imagine you're Amanda. And we're not even married. We're getting married. This is the most beautiful moment in our lives, and I'm saying these things, and in between these great promises is a, (laughs) now if you tell anybody this happened, you're not allowed to come back next week, this is just secret between us and the internet, okay? Amanda likes to watch the video, I don't like to watch the video, She showed it to our kids last summer on our anniversary, and they were upstairs watching it, and I was downstairs, but I did come up and peek a little bit during this horrific moment, and she's just patting my back. She's not crying with me. She's not hugging me, just patting my back, like, what did I get myself into? Is it, is it too late? Is it too late? But it was, it was meaningful, right? This is the point. It was meaningful because I was making these vows to a person. I wasn't making vows to being married. I wasn't saying, oh, man, I'm so excited that I'm going to not be lonely anymore. So I'm going to say these vows. I'm so excited that I'm going to have somebody to give me a hug and kiss when I come home from work. I wasn't saying, man, it's going to be so great to share the housework with somebody now. I'm glad I'm getting married. I didn't say, I want to make these vows because I'm tired of sitting alone watching my favorite television show. I want to sit next to somebody while I'm watching my favorite television show. You don't make a vows, you don't make vows to the good things about marriage, you make vows to a person. But a lot of us have gotten it backwards with Jesus. We're committed to the good stuff, but we're, we're not that committed to the actual person. So when the good stuff seems to dry up on you, 
whether it's just in a week or a month or a moment, then what are we left with? But this word adulterous is, it says, no, whether we knew it or not, we were making a commitment. We were pledging loyalty to a person, just to a person, not to the good stuff, but to a person. And we see this in how Jesus called a few people. I want you to turn to the Gospel of John. I'm going to show you three people really quick that their commitment was to Jesus, not just their need. John chapter 1 So some word is beginning to spread about Jesus, just kind of person to person, nothing grand yet. It says in verse 43, (coughs) excuse me, the next day he decided to leave for Galilee and Jesus found Philip and told him, follow me. So again, at this point in Jesus's ministry, he's doing the inviting. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. So he's saying, this is the one that God has sent. I'm telling you, Nathanael, this is the one. This is what Nathanael says, verse 46. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So they had a real low view of the people of Nazareth. Come and see, Philip answered. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, here is a true Israelite, no deceit, is in him. How do you know me? Nathaniel asked. Before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree, and you were under the fig tree. I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathaniel replied, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So Nathaniel has an experience with Jesus that pulls back the curtain for him. This is not just another a person from Nazareth. This is not just another teacher. This is somebody unique and special. This is the one sent by God. A few pages to the right, John chapter 4. Jesus meets a woman at the well. You may be familiar with that story. They have a long religious conversation. And in the end, he confronts her about how many times that she's been married. And even says, the person that you're living with now, you're not actually married to. And this is what happens next, chapter 4, verse 28. Then the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the men, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. And skip down to verse 39. Now many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified, He told me everything I ever did. So this woman sees Jesus for who he is is blown away by his uniqueness. This is like nobody I've ever met. He's telling me things that no one else knows. He shouldn't know these things, but he does know these things, and so there's a commitment that is made. John chapter 12. Verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. So that's a good rule of thumb. If Jesus raises anybody from the dead in your family, you host a dinner for him. That's the least that you can do. Martha was serving them and Lazarus was the one who was reclining at the table with him. 
Then Mary, so this is the younger sister of Lazarus, took a pound of fragrant oil, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, Why wasn't this fragrant oil sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of it when it was put in. And Jesus answered, Leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. So Mary dumps out on Jesus' feet one year's salary. In that culture. So you can imagine whatever you're going to make this year. Imagine in one time giving all that away. Why does she do that? Because she sees someone of infinite worth. So we have these three people. Their commitment to Jesus was not based on their need. Their commitment to Jesus was not based on their list of prayer requests. Their commitment to Jesus was founded and anchored in this is who he is. It was to a person. He's the one sent by God. He's totally unique. I've never met anyone like him. He's of extreme worth and value. And it's that understanding that fuels long-term faithfulness. You having your needs met will eventually lead to someone saying to you, adulteresses, exclamation mark. But understanding, perceiving, receiving the greatness of Jesus is what fuels that commitment, what fuels that faithfulness day in and day out. Not just my needs being met. Adulteresses, he says, James chapter 4, then he goes on. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. So what James has done is he's drawn a big line in the sand. I told you that he's cranking up the intensity today. He draws a big line in the sand and he says, you're either on God's side or you're on the world's side. But that's not usually how we think about it. At least that's not how I think about it. I think about it. Okay, if we're drawing lines in the sand, there's this line in the sand. And on one side, this is God's side. And that's all the God stuff. And that's heaven. And that's Jesus. And that's all the good stuff. All the gentleness, kindness. That's all this stuff. Then on the other side of that line, it's just the neutral stuff. It's not bad. It's not good. Then there is another line way over here. And that's all the evil stuff. That's where Satan lives. And that's where the demons are. And that's where pride lives and envy and boasting and all that that's the evil stuff. But I have two zones in which I can live. I can live in the God zone. That's a good zone right over here. And I feel really good. I, that's why I come to church because it gets me in the God zone. And I like being in the God zone. But then when I leave church, then I just hang out in the neutral zone. And every once in a while, I'm just going to be honest, I kind of get over here. But I, you know, I feel bad about it. And then I come back over to the neutral zone. And then I come back to church and I'm back over into the God zone. But sometimes I read the Bible and I'm in the God zone. But then I'm not reading the Bible a lot. I'm just going to be honest. And so that's the neutral thing. It's not evil thing. I mean, it's not evil not to read the scripture. It's just kind of a neutral thing. And I'm at work. I'm in the neutral zone. When I'm being a mom, I'm at the neutral zone. When I'm at doing the sports stuff, when I'm dance dad, you know, I'm a neutral zone. But James says, no, 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 no. Only two zones, only two areas, one line in the sand. You're either on this side with God, I'm a friend of God, or you're on the other side and I'm a friend of the world. There's not a neutral zone. And there's not a neutral zone 
because there are two kingdoms. There's God's kingdom. Jesus brought that to us. Jesus opened that. Jesus is the king of that kingdom. And then there's the kingdom of this world. That's how the scripture defines it. And world is one of those terms. Now, sometimes in the Bible, in the New Testament, world means the people of the world. Like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But we know that's not the world. That's the people of the world. The other way it's used is the way it's used here, which is not talking about the earth, physical and tangible, or the people. It's talking about the system that we live in. And we know from the scripture that Satan is the ruler of that system. In fact, Jesus called him the ruler of the world. So he organizes that system, and he organizes it against God. So yeah, maybe what you and I are doing is technically not sin. But still, we're living in a system that is organized against God, and it's organized by Satan. So when we think of three zones, when we think of three spaces, and two which we can freely live in, we're really living underneath the authority of Satan in that neutral place. Because he's the one who has designed all this. So technically, the thing that you're doing is not wrong. But the system that you're doing it in is broken. And so he draws a line. He said, you're either on this side or you're on this side. When I was 19 years old, I was kind of a glorified intern at uh, this church. And we hosted a retreat for our teenagers uh, at the church, uh, high school students and middle school students. And so it was me and about 10 other uh, 19 and 20 and 21 year olds and we're putting on this retreat in our little town that we lived in and, and we love these students so much and we wanted for them what we were experiencing and I'll just speak for me I was at the the, the top the, the the apex of of zealousness uh, for Jesus you never met somebody like that I was just zealous off the charts but wisdom was not even on the charts that's uh that's where I was. And so had all this passion. Didn't know what to do with the passion, but I had all this passion. I just wanted for these students to be experiencing in their connection to Jesus what I was experiencing in mine, which was real. I didn't know what to do with it, but it was real. And, and so the, the Saturday night of this retreat, we were doing essentially a church service. And so we gather up. There were about 10 of us college students. And we're like, what are we going to talk about tonight? So which means nobody prepared anything, which is totally scary. Nobody had thought through what should we talk about. And I'm actually going to read the Bible to figure out how it all fits together. We were just winging it, uh, which is healthy. And by the opposite of healthy, I mean terribly unhealthy. And... Uh, and so we get together and we're like, we got we to gotta draw a line in the sand for these students. Man, they got to live for Jesus or they got to pick a side. And that's kind of was our mindset. And so we find some scripture that would prove that, which is never a, a healthy idea. And we got some random Old Testament passage. And man, we just go to preach. And I was preaching my guts out and just spitting and spitting. Just wanted so bad for these high school and middle school students. You know, just pick God's side. And so I literally, I took some tape and I just taped down the middle of the gym floor. And we said, me and a friend, we said, you got to pick which side are you on. Are you on God's side or are you on the devil's side? (laughs) It's going to be totally surprising. 100% of the people wanted to be on God's side. (laughs) I think about 15% of them meant it. The other 85% weren't really paying attention, but when they got it clear, like, oh, I'm sitting in the devil's side. No, I don't want to be on the devil's side. I want to be. I wish it was that easy, don't you? 
I wish today that faithfulness, all that mattered was I could just draw a big line of tape right here in the middle of this building and say, just pick a side and then be done with it. But those grand declarations only work when they're supported by daily declarations. The grand declarations are powerful. Honestly, I've had a few of those in my life where it just come to a moment and it's like, no, I really do believe this and I'm re-engaging my heart, mind, and soul. The grand declarations are powerful. But they're only as powerful as a Monday morning declaration. But we do have to choose. And it's not the kind of choosing that says, yeah, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, I will serve the Lord and I'm going to buy a little plaque and I'm going to hang it by my doorbell. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is you're going to be faithful to God or you're going to be a friend to the world. And if you're a friend to the world and you're an enemy of God, I don't care whether you came to church today or not because James is drawing the line in the sand. So how do I know? How do I know if I'm a friend of the world? Well, there are a lot of ways that you can know. We can just back up the book of James and you can ask yourself, are you filled with selfish ambition and envy? When I am, then I'm a friend of the world. Am I just a talker and not a doer? Then I'm a friend of the world. Am I playing favorites? Do I like this one group of people and treat them one way and I not like another group of people and I treat them a different way? Then I'm a friend of the world. There are lots of ways that you can know. Proverbs chapter 27 verse 9 says, the sweetness of a friend is his counsel. So just ask yourself, are you being counseled by the world? Are you taking your cues? Are you taking your wisdom? Are you taking your guidance from the world and the way it operates? Then no matter what you say, then you are a friend to the world. And if I realize today that I have been taking the world's counsel, I'm a friend of the world, and I'm a friend of the world, and unfortunately I'm an enemy of God. He draws the line. And then he goes on in verse 5. This is where we'll finish. Or do you think it's without reason the scripture says that the spirit he has caused to live in us yearns jealously? Now when he says the scripture says, he's not quoting one scripture here. He's summarizing many scriptures from the Old Testament. I want to show you one. Turn to Zechariah chapter 8 verse 2. It may have been a while since you have been in the book of Zechariah. It's the second to last book in the Old Testament. So if you find Matthew just for end of Find a few pages to the left. When Amanda and I were in college, uh, we had just recently gotten engaged, and she was living down here in, in Texas, and I was still in Missouri where I grew up and had started my university journey. So some of you are on a university journey. I'm with you all the way. If you've transferred four times in five semesters, then I feel your pain. So we recently got engaged, but there were 12 hours essentially in between us, and she was, uh, one semester had this like intro to music class, and I don't know why she was taking this, this class, but uh, she needed a fine arts credit, and so, she, so we would talk on the phone every night, and, and she would be telling me about the class, and I remember the first time that she told me about, you know, the first day 
of class in college, you're looking for, do I know anybody in this room? And if you do, you just cling to them because, you know, they're, you don't know anybody in a stranger. It's nice to sit by somebody you know. Well, she's sitting there, and this guy named Bobby, who she had once known, comes and sits next to her. And so I remember the first time that I heard Bobby's name. I'm like, what's this guy all about? It's like nothing. He's honestly kind of dorky. Bobby, if you go to church with us, like I totally love you. <laughs> and honestly, I kind of hate you at the same time. I don't know if I can get away with that. But so, so she mentions this guy's name, and I'm like, mm-hmm. She's like, no, no, no. Just be cool. It's not like that. I'm like, it's like that for him. She's like, no, just shut up. You're a moron. I'm like, okay. Somehow, magically, Bobby sat next to her every day. So one time I come to visit her. So I drive 12 hours to skip class. But this is kind of girl she is. She's so committed to doing the right thing. I would skip class. She would not skip class. So I'd have to go to class with her. Normally, I would just hang out outside. Because why do I want to skip class and then go to some class that I don't even get credit for? I'm not getting credit for my classes back home. I don't want credit for your classes. And But when it came to this class, I'm like, yes, I am going in. (laughs) Very much going in. And so I made sure that the seating arrangement when I was there was Amanda and me and then Bobby with me right in the middle so that he would know that I knew what he was trying to do. That is jealousy. When we define it, if you could tell a story and say, this is the very definition of what it means to be jealous, that would be it. So when we read these scriptures and and it talks about God being jealous and the spirit of God inside of us, it, it doesn't feel totally right. But look at Zechariah chapter eight. Because our jealousy comes from a place of insecurity, negativity. It's about possessing someone, puts that person actually in a prison. It's just very unhealthy. But this is what God's jealousy looks like. Chapter 8, verse 1. The word of the Lord of hosts came. The Lord of hosts says this. I am extremely zealous, jealous for Zion. Zion is Jerusalem. I am jealous for her with great wrath. We're like, okay, hey, that sounds just like jealousy. If I were gonna say God was jealous, that's what it would sound like. Jealous for her with great wrath. But look at verse three. The Lord says this, I will return to Zion and live in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city, the mountain of the Lord of hosts and the holy mountain. The Lord of hosts says this, old men and women will again sit along the streets of Jerusalem each with a staff in hand because of advanced age. The streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in them. The Lord of hosts says this, though it may seem incredible to, to, to the remnant of this people in those days, should it also seem incredible to me, 
the declaration of the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts says this, I will save my people from the land of the east and the land of the west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people and I will be their faithful and righteous God. Now all of a sudden God's jealousy doesn't sound that bad. Doesn't sound that bad when it's talking about his presence returning to the city of God. It doesn't sound that bad when you can imagine old people because they've lived a long and good life watching children play in the streets and those children are playing with joy and laughter and peace. God is jealous for this. God is not jealous from a place of insecurity. Honestly, he's going to be the same. He doesn't change which side, no matter what side of the line you pick. He won't suddenly be insecure if you realize today, you know what, I just want to be a friend of the world. His security doesn't change. He is the same. So he's not jealous out of a place of emptiness. He's not jealous out of a place of brokenness. He's jealous out of a place of love. And it means a lot of what you and I are looking for is actually found inside his jealousy. The joy that you're looking for, you've been looking for it by being a friend of the world and it's actually found inside the jealousy of God. You've been looking for peace. You've been turning to your job or the job market to try to restore that peace. You've been trying to play fast and loose with your finances to try to get that in order so that you will have peace. You've been uh, trying to make relational moves in order to get peace. Really, your peace is wrapped up inside the jealousy of God. Your contentment inside the jealousy of God. You want to laugh more? It's inside the jealousy of God. Because his jealousy is for us and not against us. His jealousy is a good gift to us. And I love that it says, I am jealous for her in verse two with great wrath. That's why James turns up the intensity in these two verses. It's not just to confront, 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 confront. Because he knows what Zechariah knew as he penned this. That the jealousy of God for us and for our faithfulness is actually for us. That it's a good thing for us. So with great wrath, he is going to fight against anything that would pull you from him. He's going to fight against the system of this world because it's against God. And if it's against God, then it really is against you in the long run. He's jealous for you. Because he loves you. At the end of the day, it's a compliment to you. If it feels weird to say that God is a jealous God, we'll complete the thought and say, well, why would he be jealous? Because we are loved. So actually what on the surface seems like a very harsh word is actually maybe the most comforting word of all. That you are so valuable to him you and your imperfect and my imperfect small seemingly insignificant life is so valuable to him that it would stir up his wrath of jealousy that's for you and that's for me and the great news is as James completes his sentence this is not God on a throne far far away loving us from a distance, being jealous for us from a distance. 
Scripture says that the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, that Jesus gave us as a gift, as a down payment, He has caused to live in us yearns jealousy. So it's not that we're loved from far away, that jealousy reverberates even inside of us because we carry the Holy Spirit with us. So today, James does turn up and maybe some of us realize, I think I have actually been more committed to my needs being met than Jesus. And today I wanna rearrange what my commitment is to, my commitment is to Jesus. And I see his greatness and I understand it and I let it fuel my long-term faithfulness. Maybe we realize today I've been trying to live in a couple of zones instead of just one. I don't want to turn away from living in some kind of neutral space because the neutral space isn't that neutral. And today, maybe we're comforted. What would motivate us to tomorrow's faithfulness is that God is jealous for me. So if you wake up and you see your Bible sitting there and you're like, ah, I'm kind of late, rather just turn on the news. Remember, man, no, God is jealous for me. He wants that for me. He's inviting me there. If the choice is I can listen to sports radio, but I got something turning in me, stirring in me to turn that down and spend my commute in prayer, but I really want to hear the weekend update. No, God is jealous for me. He's inviting me into this moment because I'm loved and you're loved. And those things they'll feel long-term, daily faithfulness. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We want to be doers of your word and not hearers only today. So just in a spirit of prayer, you know, Jesus says and said in the gospels that His sheep know his voice and they hear his voice. And so you have the ability to hear from God, to hear the voice of Jesus. This is in response to what we've seen in the word today. What is he saying to you? What's your next step of obedience? God, we know, according to the power of your word, the authority that comes with it, that you're jealous for us to take that next step of obedience. It's in your name we pray. Amen.